you have a copy of your scriptures, please turn to Psalm 79. Psalm 79. If you have been with us any amount of time, you know that our church likes to get a steady diet of the Psalter. We started uh, maybe five, six years ago preaching through the Psalms. We made it through the first two books. Now we've made it to the third book of the Psalter. Uh, typically, we just go to the next psalm, and you may be wondering, well, Travis, didn't you preach Psalm 77 maybe five months ago? Why are we skipping Psalm 78? Well, if you look, there's 72 verses, and I thought, no, that may be better for a um, Sunday evening split up, or uh, I didn't think you want to be here at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So I said, let me skip to Psalm 79, and typically when... I have the opportunity to preach in the morning time. I typically like to go to one of the Psalms, just the next in line, because I think they're important. They're the most quoted of all books in the Old Testament. Anytime you read the Psalms, you know the first thing you ask is, what's going on? What is the setting by which this Psalm is taking place? And oftentimes we don't know. Sometimes by good and necessary consequence, we figure out what's going on, but we're pretty sure about what this psalm is about. We know it's uh, from Asaph, which is the lineage of Asaph. There are people who were musicians in the church, who were worship leaders in the Asaphian line, who, who basically orchestrated this psalm. But we really know what's going on here. Uh, we know that the Babylonians came to completely destroy Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And anytime you're reading the Old Testament... You heard me say this a million times, you hear me say it a million to one. You always need to know who's in power. Who's the big dog in the land, and that will help you read your Old Testament. You know that at one time, the great enemy of the Israelites were the Philistines, David and Goliath. And you know that the big bad dog in the land, of course, was Israel, right around 1000 B.C. Of course, and then came the Assyrians, right around 700 B.C., that's the time of different types of running of, of Joel. We even see that's right before Jonah. We see during that time period, Isaiah, you know that the Assyrian army was massive and they came to destroy Israel. They did, but they kind of stopped in Jerusalem because God did a miracle. And of course, you continue on. Babylon eventually becomes the, the big enemy of the church. And we know that they came in in the time of Daniel and the time of Ezekiel and the Eventually, they came and destroyed Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is prophesying that time, at this time also, which is helpful if you're coming on Sunday evenings. I thought, if you're not coming on Sunday evenings, I hope you get home and your, your lunch is a little cold. But literally, Jeremiah is preaching, and about 10 to 15 years later, we have Psalm 79. The Babylonians did exactly what Jeremiah warned would take place. They're going to come, and they're going to destroy your entire city. They're going to level the city. They're going to level the temple. Everything that you thought that you had, all these privileges you had, and being in God's covenant are now destroyed. And Psalm 79 is written as they're looking at the devastation. They're looking at everything they know is destroyed. This is penned by the survivors of that Babylonian siege in Jerusalem. So that will help you as we read. Because some of us are in that place where we look around and we see complete chaos, or you see things in your life. Very applicable. This is what the Psalms do. They teach us to think. 
It teaches how God works in times of sorrow and in times of strife. So let's go to the Lord and let's ask him to help us read Psalm 79 and ask him to help us see Jesus in Psalm 79. Because we know all of the Psalms are about Jesus in some way, shape, or form. So let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come before you today and Psalm 79 is such a good psalm. We know they're all great, Father, but sometimes they speak to us in special ways. And Father, as we look at this psalm, a psalm that was written and penned by some survivors of a siege that took place in Jerusalem, your holy city, we pray, Father, that we too will know that in the midst of chaos, that there is hope. That though you are a God that disciplines your children, you want to save them. You want to put your salvation and your glory on this place. So, Father, we pray that we would learn that very lesson this morning. We pray, Father, that people would not hear me. I'm but a great sinner, a man that needs your help, that needs your son. And, Father, that we would hear from this psalm. We pray that your spirit would work this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his inhabitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before your eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will account your praise. And thus is the reading, the very words of God. Well, some of you know, me and a couple other people from this congregation went to the UK for a wedding. As I was there, I, I realized that the UK weddings are a little bit different than our weddings in the U.S., one of the things that was different was during the ceremony, I noticed there was these contraptions on these ladies' heads. And they went all kind of different ways. And come to find out, they're called fascinators. I was quite fascinated by the fascinators. If you've ever seen any type of official British ceremony, you will see ladies wearing these Fascinators, but not only were they fascinators, there was a lot of hats. I think that's something that maybe we should bring back as Presbyterians since we, we come from there. 
bring back the hats, the ladies and hats, the ladies and fasteners. But, but something that I did not see was a crown. You know, no one wears a crown on their head. Because they come from a country that actually has someone who wears a crown. Someone that is royalty. And we know that crowns are preserved for royalty, whether they're a king or a queen, an emperor or a monarch. They wear these crowns. And there's many, many crowns that are worn around the world. And we know that these crowns are only sovereign over the land by which they live. We know that they're not in control of everything. There are sovereign nations all around this world that have a king or have some type of government they submit to. We also know that there is oftentimes bigger sovereign nations that will try to take over smaller sovereign nations. This is nothing new. From the beginning of time, we have seen kings try to conquer other kings. And oftentimes there's a middleman going, well, who are we going to align with? This king or that king? Who do we align with? We saw that in World War II. What nations are going to align with what nations? Which sovereign nations will be with which sovereign nations as people are trying to conquer? And throughout the time of the world, if you look at history from the beginning of time, you will see that not all nations exist forever. You remember the Holy Roman Empire? A lot of Asia and Eastern Europe, even way down to Africa, doesn't exist anymore. Those are now different nations. Quite interesting, some of you maybe have never heard of Grand Colombia. Maybe Jose and Samara has. Grand Colombia in 1819 to 1830 was one country that eventually split up into Colombia, Panama, Venezuela, and Ecuador. All one country. Well, what happened? Well, people said we're not going to serve this king. We're going to make our own king or our own type of government. We've seen that with the USSR, right? Big nations split up in a bunch of little nations, and even West and East Germany became one after the Berlin Wall fell. Many African nations were sovereign until another king took over their nation. And all around the world, it seems that God has raised nations up and brought them down. I was laughing because Johnny Gibson was preaching. He's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. And he was staying in California. And this family said, you have got to go to the bottom of this mountain and look at this castle. It's over 100 years old. And he thought, he said, the castle down by my house is over 1,000 years old. We, especially in the States, because we're such a young nation, we, we, we kind of see the here and now, though. We see the here and now. We just came on the scene in the terms of God's history and his plan of redemption and what he's doing with the world. And we forget that God will raise up nations and he will bring nations down. And oftentimes, what he will do is raise up one nation to actually judge another nation. What we see here is that God has raised up a nation called Babylon. A wicked nation, might I add, to judge the very nation 
that he set apart to be a city on a hill, to be a light, to be a place that the whole world was supposed to come and see who God is. They were going to teach them about sacrifice and blood, teach them about the coming Redeemer. This was what they were supposed to do. They were going to teach the world about holiness. They were going to be set apart. But God raised up another nation to come and destroy this nation. And the survivors of that siege of Jerusalem, they're going to write this song. Or they're going to give it to an Asaphian person to write it. We know it came from a survivor. Not everybody was taken. There was a small group left behind. And they're going to write it. If you're taking notes, you can kind of separate this psalm differently. Many people do it differently. This is probably the first time I've gone against Enstenberg. If uh, you read any type of commentary, it's free online. He's probably the best. It's not me. David will tell you that also. The other David will tell you that also. That preaches some of the psalms. Uh, but I've chosen to outline it differently. I went with someone else. But the way I've outlined it is the first thing you want to see is the destruction of the city. That's what we'll see, that the city's destroyed. And we're going we're to talk about that because the psalmist speaks about it. The second thing we'll see is salvation. Because even in the midst of destruction, they're, they're going to cry out for salvation because they know the character of God. And the third thing we'll see is vindication. They also want vindication. So destruction, salvation, and vindication. And if we look at the destruction... This is eyewitness reports. And as you know, as you read about Babylon, it seems that they're compared to locusts often. Right? Even Joel talks about the army. He was talking about the Assyrian army at the time. But they come through the land and like locusts, they destroy everything. Everything is destroyed. You maybe have seen pictures of a hurricane that has come through a city that's completely leveled the city. This was what was happening with the Babylonian army. Complete destruction, annihilation, everything's destroyed, homes are torn apart, things are burnt, nothing's left. And we see in verse 1 of Psalm 79, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. This great city of peace, this great temple of God that represented the literal presence of God to all the world is now laid in ruins. And in verse 2, this great army, they have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. There's a reason that when Jeremiah was preaching before the siege of Babylon, he takes the leaders to this trash heap. And I won't get into one of the primary reasons, but he wanted them to smell how gross a trash heap is. Because he says when Babylon comes, it's going to smell horrible. And one of the reasons it smelt so bad is because of the bodies that lay dead. There were more dead to bury than there were survivors. Gettysburg, as some of you know, was a terrible, terrible war. Over 7,000 men were dead on that field. And they said from 40 miles away, you could smell Gettysburg. This is what Jerusalem was like. 
It wasn't just, just you could see destruction. You could smell the destruction. The beasts of the earth are eating the bodies. The birds are eating the bodies. There's not enough people to go and actually bury the dead. This is a terrible, terrible scene. And you have to ask yourself this question. Wasn't Judah God's special people? You have to ask yourself the question. Wasn't Judah special? I mean, didn't God put them out? Didn't God bring them out of Egypt? Didn't God from nothing create Abraham and his descendants? Wasn't God in a special relationship with them? Yes. That's the reason that judgment starts in the house of God. God's judged them for the very reason that they were his special people. You need to understand what brought this upon the nation was their rebellion. There was idolatry in the homes at this time. Jeremiah will give scenes that little children, when they're in exile, when they're taken back to Babylon, you know what they're going to remember? is the idols. Everyone. It was the hip thing to do, is have idols. They would go to the temple and then go home and worship idols and make sacrifices to those gods just in case. Just in case, you know, just in case Yahweh's not realist, let's worship other gods. On top of that, the altar itself in, in the temple, they, they would put horns and other decorations from other gods in the temple of God. They were mixing the holy with the profane. They were mixing it. The secular with the sacred, as if it was no big deal. We're God's people, we're special. Even to the point, we read in Jeremiah 19, they were making sacrifices to false gods of their children. So when you read this, and you go, how would God allow another nation to come and completely destroy them? You need to understand, their hearts were wicked. It would have been unjust for God just to ignore the sins of Judah. It would have been unjust for God just to sweep their sins under rug. He is a holy and righteous God. And judgment starts in the house of God. And he's using Babylon to discipline Judah. Now I know 100% and I'm fully aware that we are not the nation of Israel. I don't believe we're God's special nation. I believe God loves every nation. I also believe that God raised up our government. Whether you like it or not, he raised up our government. It's very clear he raises up governments and kings and queens all around the world. And he raises up Christians in those nations. And those nations are called to, to submit as long as they don't tell us how to worship and what days we can worship. We saw how that turned out for people in the 1700s. I wasn't supposed to repeat that from my UK friend says, could you not talk about that part? Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that out. I'm fully aware that, that we're not God's special people, but, but I want to explain to you that God raises up nations and he tears them down. He will use other nations to judge nations. Oftentimes we think, well, we're the special people. We've done and we have done great good. I really enjoy that older men love me. They're like, thank you for what? Like, your people. We don't speak German today because of your people. I'm like, oh, thank you. I had nothing to do with that. But yes, we did. We went and, and we rescued people. It was great. But we haven't been perfect. 
We've had sins. Think about our policies in the past, our Jim Crow policies, our abortion policies for over 40 years, same-sex marriage. Even to this day, promotion of teenagers having gender reassignment surgeries. So to think that God wouldn't raise up another nation to destroy us is just foolish. Psalm 79 is just not written to Judah, but it's written to God's people. All around the world, I'm just not talking about our nation, all around the world, Christians should be reading this thinking, you know what? We need to ask God to have mercy on us. We need to ask God to raise up men and women who are not ashamed to call upon the Lord, who are not ashamed of the truth of the gospel. May God give us leaders that don't just give lip service. May he give us leaders that actually care about truth. Judah, their heart was so far gone, God disciplined them. Verse 4, the survivors said, we have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. They're a laughing stock. Could you imagine that? This is the same people that God brought out of the land of Egypt. The miracles, right? The plagues, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. We read these stories to kids, and this is so exciting. They saw this. This is their special nation. And now they set up this great temple. Solomon has his temple. Kings and queens from all over the world are coming to visit Israel. And they go, wow. Yahweh did this for yes, we serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. God takes care of us. Now they're the laughing stock of the world. They are a joke. And you have to ask yourself another question. Well, I thought they were going to get raptured out before the Babylonians came and destroyed them. And I'm not here to talk about eschatology specifically. People who believe in that rapture doctrine, many of them are world-class Bible scholars. They know the Bible better than I do. They love the Lord and they're serious. You have some wacky people on my side and wacky people on their side. But for the, for the most of them, they're serious Bible scholars. But one thing I want you to see in Psalm 79 is about the rest of Scripture. Just because you're in covenant with God, just because you're the elect of God, doesn't mean that you're going to escape some type of judgment. That you're going to escape some type of hardship in life. That you're going to escape some type of destruction of your nation. I think about the people in the Ukraine. I think about the Christians in Russia. I think both of them are going, I don't know what to do, Lord. <laughs> you think we're in a vacuum place. Think about them. They're praying a little bit differently than we're praying. But they're praying through the blood of Jesus like we are, to a holy and righteous God. But God did not just take them out of the situation. They're having to live through the situation. The remnant, the remnant is having to live through this situation in Psalm 79. And God's just not going to take you out of hardship. He may lead you in a difficult hard place as Rob is going, Rob Shepard on Wednesday nights is going over Romans 8. We're just doing a whole study on Romans 8. And one of the things we learned is that 
all of creation is groaning together in pains of childbirth. Painful. The whole world is in pain, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God, for the Lord to return. Judah, just because they were God's special people, many of the elect inside of there didn't mean that God took them out of the hardship. That's just glaring. You have to see that in the song. They experienced this hardship, and maybe you're like Judah. You love the Lord too. Your heart's been changed, and you realize, you know what? God's just dropped me right there in the middle of Jerusalem, hasn't he? And it looks like complete chaos all around. I want you to know that there's hope. Which brings us to the second point is the salvation. I want you to understand that, that God is not punishing Judah. He's disciplining Judah. You need to understand God is not punishing them. He's disciplining them. And, and maybe you're a parent. If you are a parent, you understand that if you don't discipline your kid, they won't be sitting in the chair right now. <laughs> right? They're going to be running around, having a good time, listening to nobody. And you know it's your responsibility to discipline them. That's the reason many of the kids are looking at me right now. Go, oh yeah, I don't want to get thumped, pinched. I don't want to get home and have to talk. They're being disciplined. That is your responsibility. No good parent goes, I can't wait to get home and, and punish my kid. No, no, that's, that's wickedness. You need to repent. If you're that way, turn yourself into the police or come see the elders and we'll take care of that. You don't, you don't treat children that way. We protect kids. We love them. We discipline kids. Because we know that discipline keeps us on the straight and narrow. I was talking to a Christian friend recently. It seemed that you have some people that everything they touch turns to gold, but everything he touched turned to dirt. <laughs> everything, right? So I finally saved up some money, some money, got momentum. Next thing you know, his transmission goes out. Next thing you know, his engine breaks down. Oh, my kid, I have to take him to the hospital. Nothing's going right. And I had to ask this tough question. I said, have you read Hebrews 12 before? What do you mean? You know, because he wasn't walking with the Lord and he claimed to be a Christian. I said, Hebrews 12 says the Lord disciplines the one he loves. I'm not saying every hardship is discipline. Sometimes it's just testing. But I will say this, if that doesn't cross your mind, you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. Because I've seen in Scripture that God disciplines. I've experienced it myself. This was discipline. Babylon coming into Judah, leveling the city, was discipline. And if you're being, you'll, you'll know the difference, but you need to ask that question. But if the Lord is disciplining you, know this, it doesn't last forever. It doesn't last forever. Verse 5. How long? Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? The remnant who have learned their lesson, who love Yahweh, they're asking, are you going to be angry at us forever? Because it's not looking good right now. 
I mean, the entire city is destroyed. It smells terrible. And they're waiting. How long, O Lord, is something that you read in Psalm 4, 6, 13, 35, 62, 74, 80, 89, 90, 94, 119. You see it all throughout the Psalter. Then asking, how long before you come and deliver us? There's this waiting and waiting and waiting. Paul will speak about this. We ourselves, who have the first fruit, what do we do? We, we wait. We groan. We are this waiting. We are this waiting period for God to come and help us. And the reason the psalmist can pray that is because he knows the character of God. He knows that God, in his essence, is a God that wants to display his salvation. We praise God for his wonderful works. We praise God for creation and the sun and the moon and the stars. We wonder at him. But you know what we praise him for so much? Because we're not going to go to hell. Because Jesus Christ has come and paid for our sins. And what do we do? We go, praise the Lord. We sang it this morning. Your mercy is more. No matter what sins that I've done, your mercy is more. And we praise him because the character of God is he loves to deliver. He loves to save. And he's not going to continue to put the pedal to the metal to teach his people a lesson. I was in San Diego in Los Angeles last year. And my friend has a Bible study with a lot of ex-cons. They were in prison. They were juveniles who committed murder. They called them juvenile all walks, life without parole. And I met a man who got out because California changed their laws. He was in, in jail for 15 years as a juvenile in the gangs. He knows more theology than I do. He studied it for 15 years. The Lord has done an amazing work in the prison system in Los Angeles. And I'm thankful this man is out. I'm going to tell you what he did. He's got this tattoo that says, Balagas. And I said, hey, can I ask you a question? He goes, what? I goes, what does Donagos mean? He goes, oh, that's what our gang did. He's pedal to the metal. That's how we ran the streets. He, I said, oh, he goes, and I want to get rid of it because this is what I do for the Lord now. Donagos. He's like, oh, that's interesting. And it made me think of the discipline of Judah. God doesn't Donagos in his discipline. Pedal to the metal. Keep it going. Oh, no, 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 no. God disciplined Judah. But he took his, took his foot off the gas. This is the reason they're crying out, how long, O Lord? We know it's not going to last forever. But when are you going to rescue us from this situation? Look at what the psalmist says now in verse 6. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. He said, we've learned our lesson." Pour out your wrath on them now. Pour it out on them. Relent. Ease up. And did you know the best thing that ever happened to Judah was the Babylonians coming and destroying that city? Think about that. Jeremiah speaks about that. The best thing that ever happened to Judah was the Babylonians come and completely destroying the city. And taking them into exile. Because God uses means, and that was the means that God used to recalibrate their hearts back to Him. At the end of the day, 
the heart is what matters. And God oftentimes take what we love the most in order to recalibrate our hearts. I was talking to a man who had a 17-year-old son who he was one of the top five players in the UK that played rugby, age of 17 and under. He was from Northern Ireland, and he was already playing with the semi-professionals at the age of 17. He was a very, very, very big, strong, fast young man. 17 years old, top five players in all of the UK. And he said his senior year, it was a Saturday afternoon, he was playing with the semi-professional team, and he was tackled in such a way he became a paraplegic. Broke his neck. And I saw a grown man crying his eyes out, telling me this story. And I was like, I'm so sorry. He says, I would trade this any day because my son walks with Jesus today. And he says, God does that sometimes. He goes, I don't know where his heart would be if he kept pursuing that path. And I said, you know what? That man gets it. God oftentimes brings hardships and troubles like he did here in Psalm 79 because he cares about our heart. That's what he wants. He wants our soul because he wants us to make it to glory. And he's using these hardship because he wants to see us in the glory. It's a part of his sovereign providential plan to persevere the saints. And our hearts is what matters. And he uses discipline often. He takes away things often because he cares about our hearts. And they got it in Judah. They're like, pour out your wrath on them. We understand what's going on. In verse 8, the survivors wrote, do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. We need you to come quickly. We understand our forefathers have sinned, but we're different. We understand. We understand that we need to serve you. Our hearts are finally right. Come see us quickly. And I think about that term quickly. I think of this type of hyper-Calvinism that the Puritans never taught, that Calvin never taught, where you just sit back and let God be God and you don't do anything. That is not the Calvinism that Calvin taught. It's not what Scripture teaches, and it's not what the Puritans taught, and it's not what Presbyterianism teaches. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day we call upon the Lord. We understand there's a lot of Things that God does in scriptures that we can't understand. There's a golden chain that we don't break. So me out. I believe I'm more Calvinistic than some that believe this. But today is the day of salvation. Is that the heart that we have? That right now we want the Lord to come and save us today. I hope it is. I hope you're not waiting. I hope you're not saying, well, maybe when I get older, you may not get that opportunity. One, the Spirit doesn't guarantee that you will be saved. He doesn't have to grant you repentance. And you never know the Lord when He will return, and you never know the day He may call you home. But do you have that heart to come quickly? They were they, they needed their like, come quickly. Our hearts are right. Come rescue us. Verse 9. Help us, God our Savior, for the glory of your name. For years. Jeremiah was preaching and he kept telling them you're living for yourself. Your heart's not right. 
You keep aligning yourself with different nations because you're afraid that God's not going to take care of you. Have you forgotten that God is taking care of people? He knows how to take care of his people. Why are you aligning yourself with the world? See, they got it. They understand that they no longer are going to live for themselves but for the glory of his name. A man named Paris Rehead preached this sermon about why people get saved. Why? Something that we talked about in Sunday school today with the kids, remember? We didn't just talk about how people died, we talked about why they died, because we're talking about catechism question number 16. Long story, we won't get into it. But why? Why often we, we don't ask that question, like, why do people get saved? Pierce Reed had said that the humanists believe, well, I need to get saved because I can have a better life now. And Christianity and church can help you have a better life. I mean, what place better to go to than the church? They love you, they give you food if you get sick, you need help, they come help you. It's kind of a good place to be, isn't it? It's great. People love you when you're sad. Because, you know, I'll get saved because I can have a better life now. Well, that's humanism. Fundamentalist, in those days, he's preaching in the 60s, he, he says people get saved because they want to have a better life in the future. Well, that's true, too. You get saved now, I guarantee you'll have a much better life in the future. When you stand before the Lord, it's going to be great being in heaven. But why? Why did you get saved? Why did you trust in Christ? You, you got saved because of the glory of God. You wanted to give Him glory, not because you could be in a better place, not because you could see your loved ones. You do it for the glory of God. That's why we live the Christian life. And Judah got that. Judah said, for the glory of your name, no longer about us, no longer about Israel being on the map and everybody looking to see how great it is, no more living, living just for our nation so people can say, ooh, your nation's great. Oh, no. We live for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Are you living for his name's sake? Which brings us to the third part of this song. We've seen the destruction, the salvation, and now the vindication. There's something about asking God to make all wrongs right. We love justice. Biblical justice. And Judah got it. When Judah was destroyed and there was only a little bit of a remnant left, all the other nations saw their opportunity now. Let's go in now and plunder the rest of Jerusalem. Whatever Babylon left, let's just plunder and take some, take some stuff home. They saw an opportunity. The whole world seemed to be opposed to the remnant there. They were crying out for justice in verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Direct quote from Joel 2. Same quotation from the book of Maccabees, which is not canonical, but you have to understand that there were empires trying to oppose their will once again, and they keep repeating this. This has been a repeat. Many people have cried out, why should the nation say, where is their God? Why should it look like that we are the ones that don't have a God? Because we have a God. We have a good God. We see, let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before your eyes. Let them see your wrath and fury. Let them see it. Don't let it be seen in us. 
he recognizes that God's name is being mocked. Martyrs have loved this son. Whenever you read about martyrs, oftentimes they are quoting Psalm 79. John Owen died on August 24th, 110 years after St. Bartholomew's day. And this is what he quoted in his final breaths. He quoted Psalm 79 because he was thinking about the day in which the French Huguenots were killed because they loved Jesus. There was a time in Maou, 14 Protestants in 1546 looked at Francis I and they said, we love Jesus. We can't serve your church because your church is teaching contrary to the gospel. And he rounded up those 14 men and they had this platform and they started putting them down into the fire. And as they got down into the fire, people said 14 men sounded like it was a choir of thousands singing Psalm 79. They were singing it because they longed for Christ to avenge their blood. Verse 11, let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Many Christians sing this prayer all around the world. There's something not right about people being killed because they worship Jesus like you and I do every Sunday. If that doesn't make your blood boil just a little bit, I don't know what will. But all around the world, people die because they love Jesus. Open Doors tells us every day 13 Christians are killed. North Korea, Afghanistan, on the top of the list, you've heard about China. People, prisoners, doomed to die because they follow Christ. And Judah, the survivors are writing this saying, we're following Christ. This is not just in verse 12. Now it says, return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. This is what we see in Revelation 7. The martyrs looked at Jesus and what do they say? How long, O Lord, before you vindicate the blood of those who have been shed because they have loved you? And you know, Jesus says, not yet. I've got my number. But there will come a day, and mark my words, the king will come and vindicate the blood of those that have been slain in the name of Christ. If anyone hears this, I'll be dead by now, so listen to it. Be warned, king, queens, and governments. Do not mess with Christians. Because there's coming a day where Jesus Christ will come and he will bring vengeance upon those who have touched his people. That's why you and I love Christians. I told the kids that today. You better look a Christian and love them because the blood of Jesus was shed for them. Right? We protect Christians. We love them because they serve the king that we serve. This is serious stuff here. And in verse 13, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. I think the psalmist understood that he may not see vindication in his life. That's the reason he asked for vindication. From generation to generation, we will always be your people. And you have to ask yourself that question. Are you still going to have the heart 
of the psalmist when you don't see vindication on this earth. I would like to say God's going to make all wrongs right before you take your last breath. But that would be a lie. You may not see biblical justice take place until the Lord returns. But you have a promise here that we are going to serve the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to love Christ as King. Not because of vindicate us just now, but because of who he is. For his name's sake, and you have that promise that from generation to generation to generation, we will love him. As we close, I was able to, to preach at this really old church, older than our country, and they planted this tree. And in this little plaque, it was dedicated to Queen Elizabeth II because they loved her. And I said, why do Presbyterians love the queen so much? Because isn't that contrary? Because, you know, she's the queen, we're Presbyterians, you know, we're not Anglican, and you know, oh, one of the godliest queens we ever had. We loved her. They loved her. And in September 19, 2022, she planned her own funeral. She, that was the day of her funeral, but she planned it quite before that. But the funeral that took place, she had planned it all. They asked her, what songs do you want? That may be a good practice for us, planning our own funeral before it comes. She planned her own funeral. She, she picked the verses. She picked the songs. She picked the songs. And she and King David had something in common. They both knew that they were but the little king and queen. And there was a bigger king and queen. And in her final verse, she chose her final song that they were going to sing together, Love Divine, written by a son of England, Charles Wesley. And in that final hymn, that final stanza, this is what the queen of England shows. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Change from glory to glory till heaven we take our place till we cast our crowns before thee lost in wonder, love, and praise. She said, I want that because I actually literally, unlike everyone else, I actually get to take my real crown and lay it at the feet of the true king. That was her heart. And I, and I ask, do we have that heart? The crowns and the rewards that we receive, are we doing them so we can lay our crowns at the feet of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? What is your motivation to follow Jesus Christ? Do you have the motivation to even follow Christ? I pray that if your life is in ruins right now, that you'll know that there is salvation. There is Christ. God is not punishing you. He punished Jesus. He only disciplines his children. He punished Jesus. He doesn't punish his children. Trust in Christ. Deliverance will come. Maybe not on this earth, but you will get deliverance when he returns. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the word.